listening to the Data Transforming Business Podcast. With this series, you can find out how data impacts your business by hearing from today's leading analysts, end users, and vendors, so that you can learn how to truly become data-driven and transform your business. Welcome to the Data Transforming Business Podcast. My name is Max Curtin, Head of Content here at EM360 and your host on today's episode. Make sure you stay up to date with all of our latest episodes by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you go for your podcasting needs. Joining me today is Patrick McFadden, who is the Vice President, Developer Relations at Datastax and a member of the Kate Sandra team, which is an open source project that combines Kubernetes with Apache Cassandra and helps companies manage data in cloud native environments alongside their applications. Patrick is here to give us an exclusive insight into the current problematic state and future of data on Kubernetes, an especially timely topic as it's notably the focal point of this year's Kubicon Europe. So, Patrick, welcome to the show and thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Max. Happy to be here and hopefully this is helpful for some of you struggling with this. I think so. I think we've got some good questions that we can delve into and get people on the straight and narrow with this. But before we get into all things data and all things Kubernetes, would you mind giving our listeners a bit of background on yourself? Sure. Uh, so as you mentioned, I do have a name, Patrick McFadden. Um, I I have worked in data infrastructure for a long time, uh, longer than I want to admit. But let me tell you, I have I don't I have my battle scars from the dot com era, and I'm still here. Um, but uh, I've worked in uh, leadership positions in engineering. I ran I was a chief architect for a number of years, um, and lately I've been working at DataStacks. This is really it was a departure from my traditional uh, career, uh, but mostly working with Apache Cassandra um, and Apache Spark. Uh, it, those projects for me were very instrumental to like what I saw as the future. So I decided to basically do a career switch and get into, um, working with, uh, with the groups and teams that make that happen. So, you know, now as uh, what I do is I help developers, I help teams and I help grow the ecosystem around what I think is one of the most important data tools for our modern life. Excellent stuff. I think you hit the nail on the head there. What a perfect area to get into. And there's a lot of exciting things happening in this space. And I'm excited to get into today's topic because there's a lot of things we can cover. And as I mentioned with what we're discussing, I think it's smart to kick off by getting you to explain exactly what we mean when we say data on Kubernetes and give us an insight into what's happening in the data Kubernetes sphere at the moment. Yeah, so data on Kubernetes is one of those things that almost sounds obvious, like, well, that's what it is, but it, it does encompass quite a bit. And if you're new to Kubernetes, you would wonder why this is a problem. But I think what this, this encompasses is this is a competency area inside of Kubernetes that deals with stateful workloads. And stateful meaning things that I don't want to go away. Um, and you know, when we started the Kubernetes journey, we, the large we, the royal we, uh, it was around stateless workloads, building microservices and that that middle tier of your applications, which were arguably hard to scale or um, difficult to manage at large scale. And when you're deploying like business logic, like servers, um, the, the individual servers and the, and the service types and um, trying to manage those with HTTP. And I mean, there's all these things that come together, right? But that was, 
that was a problem that needed to be solved for that tier. But the data portion was already underway. Um, like I said, I, I've been doing this for a while. I think I started doing scale data infrastructure what, in 2006, 2008, in that time frame, And that was way before Kubernetes. So we were growing the data side um, as a scale infrastructure using distributed computing before Kubernetes. So now what I think what, you know, this encompasses or what this, you know, when we say data on Kubernetes, we're really we're talking about merging these two competencies together. Um, Kubernetes is, has definitely taken the, the, the lead position in infrastructure management and the data portion now needs to be a part of that. And so all the things that you can think of from stateful uh, persistence, such as a like a, what you would consider a regular database, um, like Cassandra or MySQL, even into things that are analytic and doing um, streaming analytics, such as uh, Pulsar, Flink, Spark. So it is a big job and we've just gotten started. I was going to say that's the perfect way to describe it. It's a big job to kind of cover and we do our best to give listeners the stuff that they really need to know about. So we'd be remiss if we didn't go on to talk about, um, we wouldn't be doing a podcast if there wasn't some form of challenge or some kind of issue to discuss here as with all of the things that come about. So when we're talking about data on Kubernetes, what type of challenges are organizations frequently coming up against and why is data on Kubernetes so problematic? Well, yeah, so like I mentioned it before, you know, Kubernetes was designed for a certain type of workload. But um, I think what it comes down to is just the the trust level and what you're going to expect from Kubernetes versus what you need from your database. And um, and that, that just comes down to this, I need to deploy something um, in a reliable fashion that I can trust that is storing the data properly. and um, when we look at Kubernetes, it's built around this idea of of pods and things coming and going, and that's been a has been a hard thing to overcome. This stateful workload. So when we talk about stateful workloads, some of the cha- early challenges were, for instance, the storage component, like actually storing things on a disk somewhere. The storage component in early Kubernetes was very ephemeral. It, was, it would come, it would go. It really wasn't a first-class citizen inside Kubernetes. And that has changed in um, maybe the past few years. As there's been a, uh, like a, a really strong interest in making storage on Kubernetes a very important part of it. And if you think about like the, the overall scope of what we're trying to do with Kubernetes, we're creating virtual data centers. You know, when we when we did virtualization, we were creating virtual machines and then containers made that easier to work with. But now as we're we're orchestrating containers and Kubernetes, we're creating virtual data centers and those virtual data centers need to have just as many important components as like if you built your own data center, say like you (laughs) went out and poured poured a slab and put up the infrastructure and ran the power and the networking we used to do that quite a bit. I remember building, being part of those builds, but um, but now we're building those virtual data centers. So where we had compute and network solved really well, now we have the storage component that's coming up. So I, that I think that was the first and important thing to solve. 
Definitely, definitely. And how has that kind of, uh, you know, those problems around data really affecting companies going forward? What are the main pain points from that element? Well, the same reason that I think most companies got involved in Kubernetes in the first place is because this is just a, and I think this problem has actually gotten worse over the past few years, especially during the pandemic, which is if you're not ready to move quickly at scale, then you're going to get eliminated. And um, the problem of having data out of band, like saying your databases are running over in a different part of your infrastructure than your Kubernetes infrastructure, you know, the Kubernetes infrastructure can, you can deploy and scale quickly. That's what it's built to do. And when you're, when you're keeping things out of band like that, like I mentioned, you know, that if it's, if you have your, your amazing data infrastructure sitting over here and it takes six months to get it online, or it takes a procurement contract to get the servers or, maybe even not that bad, but it's not as elastic as everything else in your infrastructure, then when changes occur or you need to quickly move on an opportunity, then this is really what it comes down to. Are you able to? And data should not be keeping you back. And if I look at last year over the pandemic, the companies that figured out how to quickly transform, and we talk about digital transformation all the time, Let's face it, digital transformation has a, mostly to do with data because that's the hardest thing. It's, it has the most inertia in an organization. So that's how it's affecting these companies. You know, like if you have a problem with data, then you need to solve it. Yeah, I think that's the most key element there, as you said. And I think that should be a tagline going forward of data should not hold you back. That's a very key area to be focusing on. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously we were speaking about in the intro uh, about Kate Sandra that you work with, with the team. Talk to me about how these kind of open source communities and organizations and what you guys are doing and what people are doing to overcome these data on Kubernetes issues. Yeah, I just I just did a talk recently, and it it was provocative and it meant to be it was basically how open source is going to take back the cloud. And the reason I say that is because open source has always been a fast mover, but also uh, resets economies of scale. If you could think about like, what if Google had to buy Oracle licenses for all their databases? Do you think we would have had a Google grow up the way it did? No. It took it took them building the data infrastructure bespoke for what they needed, and you know they, this is a pattern that shows up over and over again. Data and Kubernetes is not going to be uh, different. And like I said, we're creating virtual data centers, but these open source communities are now thinking about you know resurfacing their projects. You know, for instance, data projects that can take advantage of really what the cloud offers, which is compute, network, and storage. And even on-prem, you use compute, network, and storage uh, if you're using something like OpenStack. But open source is really, I, I think, adept for this sort of thing because it's it's been purpose, uh, purpose-built for scratching an itch and quickly. Um, so when I think of like, uh, our project, Kate Sandra, uh, Kate Sandra is looking at like how do we deploy a database that keeps up with the same ethos as Kubernetes, which is that it's scalable, elastic, and always on. And if if we could do this as a community, and I think this is the most important thing, is 
building a community around that so we can share the skill building because the products are really there. I mean, there's a lot of great, I mean, Cassandra is a great database for distributed database architectures, but sometimes, you know, it's, it's not just the thing, it's how to do the thing. And that's where SREs and people like that get involved. And that's why um, open source communities are perfect because we could talk to each other and learn quickly and move faster. Yeah, exactly. You know, open source has always been the backbone of transformation in a way that's going to continue to do so. And I think you're 100% right. And I'm excited to see your idea of open source taking back the cloud. That will definitely be an interesting conversation to have um, going forward. And if we do look at the future and where all of this is heading, then would it be safe for me to say Kubernetes is the future for IT or are there other potential problems coming up that can affect decisions here? I mean, it, of course, it's an open source project that is massive. Um, it has a huge ecosystem and I, we, I've seen this play out before too, where it just gets a little distracted with itself, you know? <laughs> <clears throat> so we can we could look at like all right how do we stay on track um but it's also just the willingness for for any organization to embrace what kubernetes can do and you know there these potential problems that i can see in the future are is it is it staying relevant for what organizations need or is it going to, you know, we, we went down um, DevOps road for a long time and there's a lot of projects that got left behind because they just didn't, you know, they were really great for the, for I would say inside the firewall, but they just didn't have mass appeal. The thing that I feel like we're going to have, we're going to have the most challenge is the enterprisation of Kubernetes. And that is make, Kubernetes um, has a lot of power, but it has also this, the stigma is very difficult to use, or it has like a, a veneer in front of it that makes it difficult to use. Um, I, I think that challenge is being solved in a lot of interesting ways. So for instance, like every cloud now has its own Kubernetes service. And I would say you probably should use those at this point. Um, and there'll be more challenges as coming along, especially when it comes to data. How do you just magically deploy your, I think, um, you know, that I use the word magic, but that magic is code word for AI. How do we use AI to do more intelligent deployment of our infrastructure? Um, and that that's going to solve one of those biggest problems is just the sheer volume of what we have to do in the future. Do you think that's the case, though, in terms of it is actually difficult from the enterprise level to understand and implement? Or is it more of a not lack of education or lack of wanting to understand of how it works and how it fits into it all. Well, there's a barrier to entry, you know, that that's, that's I think that's one of the, I, I, you know, I've done enterprise IT and I've worked inside of enterprises and the barrier of entry is why is, why are we going to fix something that's not broken? You know, that's why we had VB six for what, 20 years almost. <laughs> um, mainframes. I mean, think of all the things that have just, lasted in enterprises because they're not broke. Why are we fixing this? It's This is going to be, and there's a lot of incumbents out there that don't want you to get off of uh, their current setup. Um, and they're going to put a lot of energy into for you not to embrace open source and Kubernetes. 
<laughs> so uh, I, I'm not going to name names, but we all know who we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. No, I think that's uh, that's 100% right. And I wanted to kind of, you know, end the podcast here by just looking slightly ahead to what's coming. We've talked about how, um, you know, data stacks are part of the Apache Cassandra community. Uh, we've talk- touched on the open source projects like Kate Sandra and what they've been doing to develop. But what would a future launch of Cassandra 4.0 mean for the data on Kubernetes landscape? Yeah, and this is very timely um, because we just uh, we just voted in the release candidate one this weekend. Uh, so upon on this recording, <laughs> on this day, um, you know that just happened uh, yesterday. So, and that's a major milestone. We have not shipped a major version of Cassandra in years, and for for a lot of good reasons. I know I could say that now with hindsight, um, <laughs> but we, we've made a decision as, as a project that the most important feature of a mature, a 10 year old database is going to be stability and correctness. And we will not ship Cassandra until we're the, the largest producers and, and contributors are, are running it in production. So that means that the dot zero is ready for production, and that was a that's a huge thing to say from an, uh, from a project because it does make it look like it's going slowly. But no, you're going to get instead of getting a dot zero and waiting till a dot one or dot two before you even think about putting it in production. No, we're going to make dot o the important release. Um, and so what that means for the future really is we have this amazing baseline uh, to work from. Cassandra 4, I, I'm I'm not going to flinch when I say this will probably be the most stable database ever shipped. And it needs to be because when you think of data on Kubernetes with scale, elasticity, and always on, these are being deployed in a variety of environments with all kinds of interesting failure modes. And the last thing you want when you're deploying on Kubernetes is to deal with downtime or a loss of data. So I think that's that's what's exciting to me is we're as we're really starting to ramp up data on Kubernetes, we now have a database that is bulletproof <laughs> to work from. And what's the future, what I'm looking at now is I'm looking at all of the things that this unlocks for Cassandra. Um, there's some really cool things that are happening right now in like in the forward, looking forward past 4.0. Things like breaking up, you know, we just released our serverless version of Cassandra in our Astra database, uh, which is our uh, Cassandra as a service. We're looking at donating those those components into the project. There are some really interesting storage choices. There's companies like Intel that are already doing work on the future branch beyond 4.0. So thinking of the future and what that means is that we have we have the perfect database at the right time with the right kind of stability we need for the next 10 years. So I'm I'm having a great Monday. I don't know about you, Max, but I'm really excited. <laughs> <laughs> no, I couldn't agree more. And hearing it come from you makes it even more exciting to see the possibilities and the opportunities that this is going to open up. It's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to keep my ear to the ground and see where this is all going and, and see what comes out of it. It's going to be, going to be great for sure. All I can say, though, Patrick, is uh, that's the end of our show. But thank you for coming on today, walking us through all of this and giving your insights. 
Absolutely, Max. Have me anytime. I love talking to you about these kind of things, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. We uh, we definitely will. And maybe we'll delve into Cassandra 4.0 once we get the proper big launch and see what we can do with it. So uh, thank you once again for coming on. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for everyone who took the time to listen to this episode. We hope you took a lot away from it. And if you're looking for more information, I'm going to give you two websites. We've got uh, datastacks.com, which has some fantastic resources on it. And we've also got katesandra.io if you want to learn more about the Kate Sandra project. And that's Kate with a K8. So make sure you go check that out. We'll be back with another episode in our series coming up shortly. Until then, you can join the conversation at Ian360Tech on Twitter and LinkedIn. Please make sure you subscribe on all major platforms. And of course, for more great daily content, head on over to Ian360Tech.com. <laughs> <laughs>